These are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to another episode of the Greek Myth Files. We're sailing toward the end of the third season, featuring myths that take place in the Far East. Today we'll be focusing on the Argonauts' voyage home from Colchis, which was a winding and far-reaching journey that took them back by a different route than they took to get there. At the center of this story will be Jason's savior in Colchis, Medea, who betrayed her family in Colchis to help the young stranger Jason complete the nearly impossible tasks imposed on him by her father, King Aetes. While we won't be focusing too much on the specifics, there is a lot of geography in Apollonius' epic description of their journey home, so we invite listeners who want to follow along in the wake of the Argonauts to take a look at our detailed map on our website, manto-myth.org gmf. When the Argonauts finally do reach home after many further stops, Medea will continue to be featured when she helps Jason yet again by punishing Peleos, the deceitful king who sent Jason on his quest back in Yolkis in the first place. In pretty much every situation, it's Medea who does the dirty work, and Jason's debt to her grows more and more, setting us up for our next and last episode in Season 3, where we will focus on what might be called Medea's last act after Jason deserts her for another woman. So sit back, relax, and take in another edition of The Greek Myth Files. When we last left Jason, Medea, and the Argonauts, they had just set sail with the Golden Fleece as the huge army of Aietes stormed toward the shore. Looking out in the distance at the sails of the Argo, Aietes thundered in anger and made a great pronouncement to his men. Unless you bring back Medea for punishment, you might as well not come home at all. Now, leading those under Aietes' command was his son, named Absyrtus, and he knew how serious his father was. So he, along with the rest of Aietes' army, readied the many ships of the Colchians to set out and to reclaim the traitorous Medea. They split up. Some headed due west toward the Clashing Rocks, the way the Argonauts had taken on their outward voyage and the most direct route, while others headed northwest to the mouth of the Ister River, the ancient name for the Danube. It was this latter way that the Argonauts had gone, following the guidance of Phineas, the blind seer once vexed by the snatching harpies. Phineas had told them that they would be able to reach home only by a different route, and for the time being the Argonauts were blessed by a favorable wind that took them northwest across the Black Sea. The goddess Hera was still looking after Jason, but she was also plotting the doom of Peleos, Jason's uncle who had usurped power back in Yolkis and had more damningly forgotten to honor her, Hera, in the sacrifices. But it wasn't Jason who was going to exact his revenge against Peleos, but rather Medea, In fact, it was Medea who was becoming the star of the whole trip. It was she who had helped Jason tame the bulls, plow the field, and destroy the earthborn men. It was also she who had put to sleep the dragon guarding the golden fleece. And now she would help Jason escape when he was blockaded by Absyrtus and his ships along the Danube River. The Colchian ships had entered the Danube River along one of the many entrances to the south and had slipped upstream past the Argo, which had taken a slightly more northerly channel. 
As the Colchian ships sailed up the river, they brought terror to the locals, who had never seen a seafaring vessel before, and thought that they were just leviathans from the deep to wreak havoc upon them and their land. The Colchians had the Argonauts greatly outnumbered in ships and men, and when they had blockaded the river, the Argonauts had no choice but to cut a deal. The two sides met and agreed that the Argonauts could keep the fleece. After all, Jason had fulfilled the challenges set out by Aetes. But as for Medea, she would be left on the island of Artemis and await an independent judge, the priest of the temple, to render judgment on her fate. Well, all of this was arranged without Medea's input, and when she learned about it, she insisted on a meeting with Jason to make her case. She was hopping mad, how unfair he was being, and she brought down curses on Jason for not fulfilling his vow to her. Medea's fuming rant had, to put it lightly, made Jason scared, and he backtracked quickly. In this scene, one can see how terrifying Medea can be. Crossing an angry woman with magical powers couldn't end well. So Jason tried to calm her by suggesting that the agreement he'd made with the Colchians might allow them some time to come up with a plan to somehow get rid of Absyrtus, the leader of the Colchians, the son of Aetes, and, we must remember, Medea's brother. Rather than objecting to this plan, Medea demanded that Jason get on it. But if they were to render him unsuspecting and vulnerable for the kill, Jason should lure him with lavish gifts and presents. She, in turn, would call a private meeting with her brother and tell him, deceitfully, that she was on his side. Medea's rejection of her family was now complete. She had put all of her eggs entirely in Jason's basket. Medea gave the heralds a message for Aspirtus that would serve as bait. As soon as she had come to the Temple of Artemis in accordance with the treaty, he was to meet her there under the cover of night. She was planning to steal the Golden Fleece and return with him to the Palace of Aetes. They must confer. And as a pretext for her treachery, she said that the sons of Phrixus had compelled her to go off with the Argonauts. Such was the lure. And she reinforced her words with magic, scattering to the four winds spells of such potency as would have drawn wild creatures far away to come down from their mountain lairs. The trap was set. The Argonauts left Medea in the temple on the island of Artemis, and Jason hid in ambush. Absyrtus, somewhat suspicious, nonetheless joined Medea in the temple, where she suggested a plan to turn the tables on the Argonauts and convinced him that she was looking to help him. Now unsuspecting, Absyrtus had opened himself up to danger. Jason leapt from this hiding place with his naked sword uplifted. Medea quickly turned aside, covering her eyes with her veil so as to not see her brother's blood spilt. And Jason marked him down, and he struck him, as a butcher fells a mighty strong-horned bull. Aspirtus sank to his knees, and in his death throes cupped his hands over the wound to staunch the dark blood, but Jason, after lopping off the dead man's extremities, licked up some blood three times, and three times spat the pollution out, as killers do in the attempt to expiate a treacherous murder. Then he hid the cold corpse in the earth. Now that their leader, Absyrtus, was dead, the Argonauts dispatched Absyrtus' crew, who were just as unsuspecting. There was a truce, after all. 
Then, under the cover of night, they were just able to avoid the other numerous ships, less alert than before, and they slipped past them and continued up the Danube River. They made their way upstream and, impossibly, into the Adriatic Sea, which lies to the east of Italy and separates it from Greece. I say impossibly because there is no outlet from the Danube into any sea except the Black Sea, and Apollonius's epic treats all the rivers in Europe as interconnected, even though they don't flow together at all. And again, after looping around the Adriatic and entering the Po River, they are then set to enter the Rhone River, which likewise does not connect to the Po at any point. Now, as it happens, even the most educated of Greeks had only an incomplete knowledge of the geography of these regions, and the fact that all of the rivers Apollonius connects together have their origins in the Alps probably led to his assumption that they were all interconnected somehow. Of course, this is from our perspective. The average Greek was probably less interested in the exact geography than they were about the adventures themselves. As you can see on the map at our website, Apollonius seems to be taking a very circuitous route to get the Argonauts home, and it really does seem somewhat contrived. As it happens, there were lots of traditions that took the Argonauts home in different directions, north and south, and Apollonius seems to be stitching them together, in part to align the trip with another famous series of myths, those found in Homer's Odyssey, which predates Apollonius's epic by perhaps 300 or more years. It's crucial to know that Homer's works were considered the most important ones in the ancient world and influenced almost every piece of literature that emerged in ancient Greece subsequently. Anyways, the Argonauts sail down the Rhone and enter the Tuscan Sea, which lies to the west of Italy, and they start sailing down the coast. The first stop was at a place the ancients called Kirkion, or Circe's Island, which we'll focus on here for a bit. Mythophiles may remember that Circe was the mysterious sorceress that turned Odysseus's men into pigs when they went in search of inhabitants of the land. Of course, Odysseus's travels, just like the Argonaut adventure, was originally set in a sort of fantasy land, not in a real geography. But the later Greeks, as they colonized both the East and the West, tried to associate real places with those mythical ones in the Odyssey. And pretty early on, Odysseus's encounters were tied to places to the west of Greece, specifically southern Italy and Sicily, which were heavily colonized by the Greeks starting in the 7th century BCE. The episode featuring Circe was specifically associated with a promontory on the west coast of Italy, and it still has the name today of Monte Circeo, which reminds us that place names tend to stick, especially when they are associated with some historical or, in our case, a mythological event of some significance. So Apollonius's epic poem, which was composed centuries after the Homeric epic, is intentionally tying the Argonauts' return voyage west into the Homeric world. But there's also another nifty connection. Circe was said to be Aeti's sister, and so was Medea's aunt. This genealogical connection makes sense because both Circe and Medea are sorceresses who have special magical skills. Fans of the Odyssey will recall that Circe turned Odysseus's men into pigs using a special drink she made. When the Argonauts arrived at Circe's harbor, they found her washing her clothes. The night before, she had received a harrowing dream, one of bloodshed that served as some sort of omen, but she was unsure what it meant and was trying to distract herself with chores. Circe did not know who any of the visitors were, for Medea had covered her face with her veil out of shame. So Circe invited them all into her house, as was demanded in antiquity. But only Jason and Medea went inside with her. 
Once there, Circe invited them to sit on polished chairs to chat, but they instead quickly sat down on the hearth. Jason fixed the sword he had used to kill Absyrtus in the earth. Circe understood immediately. They were seeking asylum and purification for having committed some kind of killing. Sitting on the hearth or the fireplace of another person's home in antiquity was an act of supplication and meant that they were looking for an act of mercy. It was something of an obligation for the homeowner to help the visitors, and Greek religion and myth saw Zeus as a protector of suppliants. And so when Circe saw them on the hearth, she remembered the dream and realized that one or both of them had committed murder and realized that she was to purify them, to remove the stain with a ritual act, a sacrifice, and a prayer. Since these ritual purifications are super interesting, we'll describe Circe's actions from top to bottom. It's important to remember that Greek rituals are very specific and any deviation would render the act null and void. First, Circe took a suckling pig from a mother sow who had just given birth, note again the specificity, and she held it over Jason and Medea's hands before spilling its blood in sacrifice to cleanse their bloodshed with the blood of something else. Then she called on Zeus the cleanser in prayer while pouring libations, which is basically another kind of religious sacrifice by pouring liquids onto the ground. While Circe's attendants cleaned up, Circe continued at the hearth, saying more prayers to Zeus and burning sacrificial cakes. Think of something like rice cakes and not birthday cakes, although the ancient Greeks did not know of rice either. At any rate, Circe performed these rites before even asking the pair what had happened. Now that the ritual was over, she asked the two why they had come to her. At this point, Medea uncovered her face, and Circe immediately recognized from her eyes that she was like her, a descendant of Helios the sun god. For all of them had radiant golden flecks in their eyes that made them immediately recognizable. They conversed in their native tongue, and Medea revealed the whole series of events to her. Circe, as is natural, felt pity for her niece, but she demanded that they leave her house immediately, for she did not approve of her betrayal of her father, Circe's own brother. Medea's deep sense of shame returned, and she left along with Jason, weeping. Now, we're going to fast forward here a bit, but the rest of the trip after visiting Circe continued to follow in the footsteps of Odysseus, so to speak. I say, so to speak, because technically the Argonaut adventure happened the generation before the Trojan War and Odysseus's long trip home from it. At any rate, after Circe's island, the Argonauts sailed past the seductive songs of the Sirens, those half-women and half-birds. But they could only do so because the musician Orpheus sang his own song to counteract theirs, and one Argonaut named Bootes was so taken in by the song anyways that he jumped off the ship and started to swim toward them. Fortunately, the goddess Aphrodite pitied him and saved him, and he lived out the rest of his life on Sicily. Just like Odysseus, the Argonauts then had to navigate between Scylla and Charybdis and the Wandering Rocks. They had to sail past Sicily, where the cattle of the sun pastured. And finally, they landed on the island of the Phaeacians and King Alcinous, just like Odysseus had done. While there, a large force of Colchians, who had not given up their search, arrived and demanded Medea back. The king, Alcinous, known for his just rulings even in the Odyssey, decided to arbitrate. Alcinous's wife, named Arete, the Greek word for excellence, by the way, convinced Jason to wed Medea and consummate the marriage. And through her influence, Alcinous judged that, because the two were officially married, he would not give her back to the Colchians. She was now Jason's for life.
After leaving Alcinous on the island of Corsaira, Jason and the Argonauts had mainland Greece in their sights. Literally, they could see the Peloponnesus from where they were. But more trials were in store for them. A northerly gale wind drove them off course to the south, across the Mediterranean and into the shifting shoals of the Syrtes. This is a gulf in North Africa, with shallow sandbars just beneath the surface, a well-known treacherous area for the historical Greeks. The Argo was swept by the billows all the way to the shores of Africa, left high and dry as the winds died and the tide moved out. Before them, they saw the vast, arid desert. Behind them were the treacherous shallows, sandbars beneath the surface, tangled seaweed in between. As Apollonius puts it, Anchias, the steersman, and all those with seafaring knowledge joined in despair. No water, no food, no hope. Each man spread out to find his own spot to die. But local goddesses, nymph of Lake Triton, took pity on Jason and his crew and advised him not to give up. They came to him and gave him a prophecy. Once Amphitrite unyoked the horses from Poseidon's chariot, they were to repay their mother for what she suffered the whole time she bore them in her womb. This is how they would return to Greece. Then the nymphs left. Jason was stunned and he didn't know what it meant, but he called his crew together. They, still despondent, nevertheless obeyed. He then told them the puzzling prophecy. When he was done, a great horse with a golden mane sprang from the sea and galloped past them. Peleus immediately understood. Amphitrite, Poseidon's wife, had unyoked her husband's chariot, the sea chariot. As for repaying their mother, Peleus interpreted this way. The womb was the Argo, who bore the Argonauts for these long years. Now the Argonauts had to carry the Argo, a heavy burden. After finding water, they set out. It was a long and laborious trip, and two Argonauts lost their lives. Canthus, who tried to drive a flock away only to be killed by its shepherd, and Mopsus, who was bitten by a venomous snake. Mopsus, a prophet, knew he was to die on the trip, but he went anyways, seeking the glory of the Argonaut adventure. Eventually, the Argonauts found their way to the sea without treacherous shoals, and soon they were heading out across the open water. They were planning to stop at Crete about halfway between North Africa and Greece. But as they approached, they were met by Talos, a giant from the bygone past, a bronze sentinel who walked around Crete three times a day and kept strangers from landing on the shore by throwing huge boulders at the incoming ships. The Argonauts were at a loss, fearing the towering figure on the shore of Crete. But as we come to expect, Medea comes to the rescue. The Argonauts took the ship out of range, as Medea had asked, and rested on their oars, waiting to see what marvelous device she would employ. Medea went up on the deck. She covered both her cheeks with a fold of her purple mantle, and Jason led her by the hand as she passed across the benches. Then, with incantations, she invoked the spirits of death, the swift hounds of Hades who feed on souls and haunt the lower air to pounce on living men. She sank to her knees and called upon them, three times in song, three times with spoken prayers. She steeled herself with her malignity and bewitched the eyes of Talos with the evil of her own. She flung at him with full force of her malevolence, and in an ecstasy of rage she plied him with images of death. Talos was hoisting up some heavy stones with which to keep the ship from anchorage when he grazed his ankle on a sharp rock and the ichor ran out of him like molten lead. He stood there briefly, high on the jutting cliff, 
but even his strong legs would not support him long. He began to sway, all power went out of him, and he came down with a resounding crash. Now, Talos is a really neat figure, and the Greeks argued over his origin story. The most famous version comes from the text we're following now, Apollonius's Argonaut Adventure. Here, Talos is a bronze giant, the last of the descendants of the bronze race, and apparently of enormous size since he can hurl boulders from the shore to prevent the Argonauts from landing on Crete. He was said to be a gift from Zeus to Europa, presumably as compensation for his violation of her after he abducted her and brought her to the island. You might know that she is the mother of Minos, the famous king of Crete. Turning to Apollodorus' account, we find that we have several varying accounts of this figure Talos. First, he was a member of the bronze race as an Apollonius. Second, he was made by Hephaestus, the god of the forge, and given to Minos and was a man made of bronze. But third, others say that he was a bull, not a person. Now, regardless of his exact nature, he was a formidable challenge to the Argonauts, but apparently not for Medea. After successfully overcoming Talos and spending the night on Crete, it was pretty smooth sailing home to Pagasai, the port of Iolcus. We're skipping over a couple of other events, which you can read for yourselves in Apollonius' epic, which finishes shortly after the Talos scene when the Argonauts return to port in Greece. But although the epic poem stops there, the myth continues, for Jason has to deal with the king who sent him on the quest in the first place, Peleos. As we mentioned earlier, the punishment of Peleos by Medea is assumed by Apollonius, but is not told explicitly, so we have to turn elsewhere for the story. As usual, we have Apollodorus' library, which gives us a good summary of the events. In his version, Peleos is an especially evil king. Thinking that there is no way that the Argonauts would return from the quest for the fleece, he set out to murder all of Jason's family to consolidate his power. Realizing that the situation was hopeless, Jason's father Eason and mother committed suicide, leaving behind Jason's baby brother named Promachos. But Peleos killed even the baby, since he did not want to leave any child behind, fearing retribution if the child grew up and came after him. Jason was uncertain how to gain his revenge, so after he returned the golden fleece to Peleos, he bided his time. Then, as usual, he asked his new wife to help. Jason asked Medea to look for a way that Peleus might be punished for his crimes against him. She went into the palace of Peleus, and by promising to make him young again through magic, persuaded his daughters to chop their father up and boil him. To convince them, she butchered a ram and, after boiling it, turned it into a lamb. Believing her, they cut their father up and boiled him. Acastus and the inhabitants of Iolcus buried his father and kicked Jason out of Iolcus, along with Medea. Again, we see Medea using her knowledge of herbs and magic to produce a remarkable scene. She cut up an aged ram and put it in a vat of boiling water with certain herbs, and voila, out comes a baby lamb. This scene is very commonly shown on Greek vases, but it's a prelude to a much more horrifying result. Seeing Medea's success, the daughters of Peleos want to do the same thing for their father, but the magic does not work this time. Instead, when they cut up their aged father, they end up just killing him and making a terrible stew out of it. 
It's a horrific way to gain revenge, and it implicates presumably innocent young women to do the dirty work. The act was one of barbarism, and Peleus's son, Acostus, who was one of the Argonauts and now king of Iolcus, had to banish Jason and Medea from the city. And that's where we'll pick up in our next episode. But now it's time to wrap up. We've covered a lot in this episode. We've brought Apollonius' epic to a close, which ended when the Argonauts make it back to Iolcus. Along the way, we trace the route of the Argo, across the Black Sea, into the Danube River, the Adriatic Sea, then the Po and Rhone Rivers, the Tuscan Sea, along the coast of Italy, through the Strait of Messina between Italy and Sicily, then to Corsaira near Greece, and finally by wind and gale to North Africa, where the Argo is beached. There, the Argonauts have to carry the Argo, and finally, when they make it to open waters, they sail to Crete, where, after dispatching Talos, finally head home and make it to Iolcus. When they get there, Medea convinces Peleus' daughters to kill their father in a misguided attempt to make him young again through magic, an episode that is implied in Apollonius' epic, but not told explicitly. We have to look elsewhere for the tale. As it happens, some tantalizing fragments from other ancient works show that Medea rejuvenated other people too. One was Jason's father Aeson, who in some versions was not dead, but just very old when Jason returned. In other versions, Medea was said to make Jason young again as well. We're not sure of the context, since Jason seems to have been young when he went to claim the Golden Fleece, but there are several allusions to her making him young again. And there are others she is said to make young as well, such as those who took care of the god Dionysus positive examples counteracting the negative act against Peleos himself, the king. As always, our website presents some visual aids. In addition to a map, we present some vases of Medea's rejuvenating an old ram and her taking on Talos, the latter a magnificent vase worth looking at closely. Well, that's it for another episode of the Greek Myth Files, the penultimate of season three. Next time, we'll wrap up the Medea saga by taking you through her final moments with Jason after he gives her up for another woman. This story is brilliantly told in Euripides' tragic play, The Medea, a play that is very much worth reading for its tense portrayal of a marriage gone sour. Great thanks go to Samantha Kutsia, our sound engineer, as well as AJ O'Neill and Julia Summer, our talented voice actors. As always, our opening and closing music is Brooklyn Tea by the fabulous Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. And our transition music is by our recently graduated student, Jack Anderson. Thanks to all of them. These have been the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time. <laughs>